ask people to quote their favourite line of dialogue from Cameron Crowe's Jerry Maguire, and in all likelihood, you will either hear Show me the money or You had me at hello. But then again, how about Help me help you? Or at a push, you might get this. Jerry, do you know the human head weighs eight pounds? All of which just goes to show how eminently quotable Crowe's script is. A writer of incredible talent, Jerry Maguire was Crowe's third film as a director. And although his previous efforts, Say Anything and Singles, had yielded modest box office returns, such was the magnetism of his Maguire project that he was able to secure no less a star than one of the most bankable in the world. When the film was released 20 years ago, Tom Cruise was on a blistering streak. A Few Good Men, The Firm, Interview with a Vampire, and perhaps most importantly, That was the first film on which Cruise served as his own producer. His next film was Jerry Maguire, and it landed him his second Oscar nomination. However, hard as it may be to fathom, Cruise was not Crowe's first choice. Crowe had been developing the script for a number of years, specifically since 1991, and in the interim, Tom Hanks had emerged as a box office behemoth of his own. Sleepless in Seattle, Apollo 13, Toy Story, and wedged between those three smash hits, he had made Philadelphia and Forrest Gump, for which he had won Oscars back-to-back, a feat no male actor had achieved since Spencer Tracy did it in the 1930s. But for whatever reason, Hanks turned down Crowe's script, and in retrospect, it appears to have been the right decision. Jerry Maguire epitomised not only the aspirations of almost every 1990s undergraduate, he also personified an aspect of America obsessed with sports, infatuated with stars, and fixated by wealth. Hank's public persona is something else. The everyman who works hard and honestly, who conducts himself with integrity and eschews material gain in favour of the more even light. Moreover, Hank's persona conveys an emotional equilibrium that Jerry Maguire doesn't arrive at until the very end of the film, which would have had audiences scratching their heads in wonder as to why it took Tom Hanks so long to realise who he was born to be. By comparison, Cruz's image has always been that of a heat-seeking missile with a pre-programmed sense of purpose, an F-14 pilot closing in on his quarry with the sole aim of blowing it from the sky before roaring home to the adulation of an adoring public. There has always been something rootless about his character's need his need for speed, and that is what Jerry Maguire was, ruthless. That is, until he wrote a mission statement and was fired from the agency. What's up? Came here to let you go. Pardon me? Came here to fire you, Jerry. It's real, you should say something. As written by Crow, Maguire's mission statement, which he titles The Things We Think and Do Not Say, The Future of Our Business, was inspired by a real-life memo penned in 1991 by the then CEO of Disney, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Titled The World is Changing, Some Thoughts on Our Business, it laid out Katzenberg's concern about where Hollywood is heading. While pay-per-view was just becoming popular in the late 1980s, there was still no Netflix, Hulu or Amazon Prime. DVDs were still a few years away, their upgrades Blu-ray were not even a rumour, and iTunes hadn't even been thought of. 
As for streaming, file sharing and bit content, a whole new language would have to be invented. But in 1991, what was preying on Katzenberg's mind was the alarming hike in production costs. In 1988, Disney had spent the then jaw-dropping sum of $58 million producing the live-action animated fantasy comedy Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Cut! 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 What the hell was wrong with that take? Nothing with you, baby Herman. You were great. You were perfect. You were better than perfect. This Roger, he keeps blowing his lines. Roger! What's this? A tweeting bird. A tweeting bird. Roger, read this. Look what it says. It says rabbit gets clunked. Rabbit sees stars. Not birds. Stars! Can we lose the playback, please? Oh, you're killing me. Killing me. For crying out loud, Roger. How the hell many times do we have to do this damn scene? No! I'll be in my trailer. Taking a nap. Excuse me, Toots. That Robert Zemeckis' film had gone on to earn $325 million worldwide was not the issue. In the summer of 1990, Disney had laid down $47 million to produce Dick Tracy. Based on the comic book hero, it had been greenlit in the wake of rival studio Warner Brothers' decision to roll out a Batman feature film. Seeing how Paramount Pictures had spun the character of Indiana Jones into a cash machine, each studio was eagerly looking for its own tentpole franchise. Batman was an investment that cost Warner's $35 million but with the amount of other villains vying for the Dark Knight's attention, there was plenty of opportunity for sequels. Now, $35 million might be quaint by today's standards, but back in January 1991, Katzenberg was concerned that Disney was drifting away from the business model that had revived the studio's fortunes in the early 1980s. Katzenberg wrote, Once we had a fairly strict and pretty successful strategy, which we will refer to as our singles and doubles philosophy. At some point, we seem to have replaced it with a strategy that might best be called the yes but philosophy. As in, yes, it's expensive, but it's a great opportunity for us. Or, yes, that's a lot to spend on marketing, but we have too much at stake not to. Or, yes, the sequel will require a big budget, but it's a potential franchise. Katzenberg was so passionate about what he saw, his thoughts spilled across 28 pages. But what had been intended solely as an internal memo was leaked and within days, everyone in Hollywood was either nodding in agreement or shaking their heads in bewilderment. And that is where Cameron Crowe got his idea for Jerry Maguire. In preparation for the script, Crowe typed his own 25-page mission statement, which turned out to be the one Tom Cruise narrates in the film. In essence, Jerry's vision boils down to this. The answer was fewer clients, less money more attention, caring for them, caring for ourselves and the games too, just starting our lives. Fewer clients, less money. Now let's consider that statement from the perspective of a studio executive in 2016. The Hollywood studios are producing fewer and fewer films than ever before. And of the films that they do produce, they come from a smaller and smaller genre pool. To extend the baseball reference Katzenberg used, Studio executives are no longer looking for a single or a double. They are expected to hit a home run every time. And yes, I know this violates the rules of the game, but that home run has to have all the bases loaded every time as well. But that means you hit the four quadrants, male and female audiences, both over and under 25. So while Jerry Maguire espoused fewer clients and less money, Executives are now going for fewer movies with greater returns. 
tentpoles, franchises, sequels, prequels, reboots and spin-offs. Why risk $10 million on a story such as Room, $15 million on Ex Machina or $20 million on Spotlight when your returns are at best uncertain? When you can pour $250 million on The Avengers, Harry Potter or Transformers and be all but guaranteed close to a billion dollars at the box office. Just as with the world's economy, the middle class movie, by which I mean the mid-range picture, is being squeezed out of existence. Now it appears you make movies for either hundreds of millions or hundreds of dollars. Popular opinion holds that the blockbuster mentality was born with Jaws and Star Wars. But that is not true. In the modern sense, both those films were modestly budgeted. The real turning point came in 1997, barely 11 months after the release of Jerry Maguire. I'm the king of the world! <laughs> At the time, Titanic was by far the most expensive picture ever made so expensive that it costs had to be shouldered by two studios. And both studios knew that going in. Then James Cameron's obsessive drive took hold. The production ran over schedule, the budget ballooned, and fears grew that the film would follow the unsinkable ship to the bottom. But it didn't. Cameron's romantic disaster picture became the biggest box office hit of all time. And how did executives react? Fewer films, bigger budgets, even bigger returns. But while those returns suggest the film industry is in rude health, we do need to ask whether wealth is the only measure of health. It is similar to the question Jerry Maguire asks. If we accept film as an art form, we must ask how do we measure its well-being? If you wanted to watch a masterpiece from the 1920s, where could you see it? In the cinema? No. On TV? Unlikely. On DVD? Only if you have already bought it. iTunes, Netflix or the other streaming platforms? Certainly not. And that is the great fantasy we've been sold. Any film, any time. The reality is that more and more old films are being culled from the archives to make way for not the new ones, but the popular ones. But back in the age of the DVD store, old movies were still afforded a space on the shelf. But in the age of the internet, those movies are being deleted because of bandwidth. It appears the films we once saw as a collective will only exist in cyberspace. Meanwhile, we can still go to see paintings and sculptures that were created centuries ago. Even modern art is housed within these great buildings. The buildings themselves are protected as sites of great heritage. Literature venerates its past in the same way as does theatre, dance and jazz. Enter a bookstore and you can easily pick up copies of The Great Gatsby, Don Quixote or The Iliad and still listen to a recording of Potato Head Blues. Just as profits rise, all empires eventually fall. The studio system already collapsed once in the 1960s. Since then, they were gradually bought out by conglomerates such as Sony, 
AOL and Comcast. Soon they are going to be replaced by the likes of Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. But what then? If we were to compile a list of today's films that could be preserved for future generations to understand who we were at the turn of the third millennium, what would we put on the list? In 1996, Cruise starred in Mission Impossible. The film's box office success spawned a franchise that has since gone on to earn over $3 billion worldwide. After Cruise completed Jerry Maguire, he went to London to star with his then-wife Nicole Kidman in what turned out to be Stanley Kubrick's final film, Eyes Wide Shut. What makes me an exception is that I happen to be in love with you. And because we're married and because I would never lie to you or hurt you. In that same year, Cruz delivered a cameo in Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. You are here for me to enlighten you, to edify you, to send you off into the now not so unknown future. So come along with me. How to fake like you are nice and caring. No, I don't want a microphone. Those films encompass the quandary. What will last? I believe the same things that last in real life. Moments that speak to and come from the heart that convey the human experience, that deepen our understanding of what it means to be alive. And the films that do that are the ones that grab you, not solely because of the $200 million lathered on the special effects, but because of that special connection we can make with one another.